Media Focus with Paul Blanchard. Welcome to this roundtable edition of Media Focus concerning gender equality in the media. From Fleet Street to Hollywood, the media still seems very male-dominated. Men hugely outnumber women in newsrooms, TV studios, film sets, behind the camera and in front of it. In fact, fewer than one in four reporters on National Daily Papers are women. So why are these figures so low and what should be done about it? And joining us as usual are three of the media's best and brightest. Kate Kinnamont is CEO of Women in Film and Television. Lindsay Nicholson is Editorial Director of Good Housekeeping. And Christina Lamb is Foreign Affairs Correspondent at the Sunday Times and author of Farewell Kabul. So, Christina, starting with yourself, are there sufficient women in senior journalism and indeed wider media roles in the UK? I don't think so. If you take my example, I've been a foreign correspondent for 29 years. I have never had a female editor, a female news editor, a female foreign editor. I have always worked men. And the problem with that is I may well think as a woman I cover things differently, and I think women do, but the person who's actually deciding what goes into the newspaper and what kind of line is being taken has always been a man. So I think that it's appalling that in this day and age that it's still that situation. So, Christina, do you think that alienates female readers too? Yes, I think it does, because I think women want to read different kind of things than male readers. And, I mean, half of the readership of newspapers are women, so they should be getting what they want to read. And it may not be so much the problem. I mean, if you look in newsrooms, if you counted all the people, there might be a reasonable percentage of women but it's where they are and what kind of thing they're writing about so they're writing a lot about sex and lipsticks and dating and not very much at the sort of harder end about news and politics and foreign affairs. So kind of stereotypical female issues? Yes absolutely. And do you think that that's a a conscious or an unconscious bias on the part of media management in terms of not promoting sufficient women to senior editorial roles? I don't know why it's happened. I mean, in an awful thing to say, but I mean, it seems to be getting worse um, rather than better. There are some female editors of newspapers. The Guardian and The Standard both have female editors and there are uh, female deputy editors. My paper, The Sunday Times, has Sarah Baxter as deputy editor. The Times has a, a female deputy editor. But overall, there's sort of massive people making decisions, the news editors, the foreign editors and other section editors seem to be all male. And that's the problem to me. I'd like to come in there. In fact, we should look at women in senior roles. For example, if we look at television, at the BBC, there has never been a woman director general. So Tony Hall, the present DG, has been accused of appointing more male personnel named James and his senior team than women. At ITV, board of directors has seven men, one woman. ITV also has a board of management with six men and one woman. Not the same woman, but they're both called Mary. Real power, in fact, comes from the top. And I think part of this is a whole cultural thing that sees men as being the boss And then women can be divided into, for example, what you were saying, the gender-specific roles, the the woman's page, the items about baby care and so forth. This whole issue is actually about the employment of women. We should have 50-50 employment of women at the top, at the middle, at the bottom. What we get in the the media, in film and television, is very largely 
the opposite way around. We've got more than 50% of women coming into television, more than 50% of women coming into film. But when it comes to being a director, for example, then you see a sort of pyramid shape, a funneling, where it's a very, very small minority of women who get to those sort of power jobs. And what's being done about it at the moment to change this imbalance? Well, it's fantastic what's being done about this, Paul. Figures and stats, they always say that knowledge is power, but I think people over the the time have been thinking that, oh, there are lots of women at the BBC, you know, you see lots of women when you walk in there, so representation must be fine. Directors UK recently did a report, they did one on TV, where they discovered that programmes, for example, like Doctor Who, that everybody watches, had never once in all its many years employed a woman director. All all of the soaps and all of the dramas had employed 13% women, 87% men. Now, Directors UK actually take the royalty statements, so they had all the facts. I'm a member of Directors UK from being a director way back, and I still get the odd royalty payment, not a lot, but, you know. The thing was, when they went to the BBC and when they went to Channel 4 and said, look at the figures, you're not employing enough women, people were genuinely shocked because these jobs aren't advertised. You never see director required for Doctor Who, director required for EastEnders in any newspaper. It's really the freelance, world of mouth, being in the golden circle. Oh, I'm looking for somebody. Oh, I worked with this guy. The boys club. The boys club. And Mm -hmm. really, I don't think it's misogyny. I think it's maybe carelessness and unthinking bias. You know, I don't know how unconscious it goes, but people tend to bring in people who are like them. So then Directors UK have since done a whole thing about the world of film and it's even worse. I work as part of a a university project. Southampton University have been doing a thing calling the shots and they've discovered that in a quarter of all British films, there are no women in the six key jobs and that's producer, director, executive producer, camera, editing and so on. You know, to think that a quarter of the films made in Britain don't have any woman in key jobs, not just directing, is shocking. So there is all that happening. And I think people are beginning to see that it's an employment issue. In America, there's actually a sort of, um, well, there's a big court case coming up against companies who are not employing women because we actually have equality laws. Lindsay, what's it like in the magazine sector? Well, I'm glad to say that I think we're we're slightly better off than uh, than the scenarios you two describe in in newspapers and in film. It's uh, in fact it's getting better. I mean, it's always been the case that the majority of editorial staff in magazines have been women, and it's only recently become the case that above editor level, uh, we've had women. The company I work for has a female chief exec and a female finance director, a female commercial director and a female head of legal. That's not yet commonplace, but it is showing that there is a change in that, which is makes perfect sense. The majority of consumer magazines are sold to women. So the idea, as was absolutely the norm, say, five years ago, that you would have all of those business decisions being taken by people to whom those magazines weren't aimed is completely ridiculous. I think one of the things you see when you start to get that equality of opportunity and so on, and I think where I would say magazines do have to be careful, is what's called um, the glass elevator syndrome. Uh, Women have traditionally always bumped their heads against the glass ceiling. 
certainly in my industry, that's now being dealt with. But now a man who um, rises up through the ranks because of their rarity value can be seen as being very special and perhaps having more skills than they in fact have. And so we do see just in the in the industry, sometimes men rising very fast in, in professions where because of their rarity value, of course, I can't recall the case of that ever happening to a woman. <laughs> <laughs> And do you think, Lindsay, that's because, uh, you know, the senior editorial positions can recruit from a, a pool on the newsroom of, of largely of women, whereas in, in newspapers, there's a kind of type A, alpha male, very machismo type environment. And that's it, it, there's literally a, a shallower pool of, of women to draw from when it comes to newspaper senior management. No, I think um, I, I think it might sound like that. But I think whatever area you're in, whatever industry you're in, you have to be really smart about recruitment. And just replacing like with like is never a very good idea because whatever business you're in, when someone leaves and a vacancy occurs, simply getting someone else, and that may well be an Oxbridge male, um, to fill that vacancy probably is about where your business was when that person first came into the job. And what you need to do is always think bigger and wider about what sort of skill set, what sort of knowledge, what kind of personal characteristics you need to fill that vacancy. And actually, I think that's what's made a difference in magazines. It's just being a lot smarter about recruitment and thinking outside the box and thinking, what actually is this job looking like now? And what's it going to look like as we go down the line, rather than what did it look like before? Christina, do you accept Lindsay's implied criticism there that the newspaper industry just isn't smart enough when it comes to hiring and promoting women? And and if not, what can be done? Well, I think part of it is the culture that newspapers, there's still this sort of macho or misogynist culture. And sometimes, you know, it's not a very attractive place for women to work. And so women get put off. And in fact, women in journalism did... uh, study recently and found that attitudes towards women in newspapers were worse than attitudes towards women on building sites. So, you know, it's not um, necessarily a good place for people to be, and particularly as they get older and want to have children. And sometimes, you know, there's not the flexibility for um, how you combine motherhood and um, doing that kind of job, which might often involve long hours and weekends. So what would you say then to senior management of newspapers per se then? I mean, what can they literally do? What's the, What practical steps could they take to change the culture? I think they have to think much more about making it a more attractive place for women to work and encouraging women um, instead of... Look, when I was pregnant, I was worried about telling my foreign editor where at the Sunday Telegraph where I worked at the time and I hid it for a long time. That's appalling. You shouldn't be in that situation. Um, but I knew that he would see, think, how could she do this kind of job covering wars and, and conflicts and things and combine that with motherhood. So instead of actually a good place to work, they would be thinking, well, how can we make this flexible and make it work for people both ways? And I just don't see that happening enough at the moment. Kate, if I could just bring you in here, ITV has recently been both criticised and praised for appointing a new uh, economics editor that's female, but she's an academic, she's got no TV experience, and many people are saying this is fantastic, it's very progressive, it's opening up the the news to this kind of uh, new person, as it were, and then other people have said that this is tokenism and patronising. What would be your view? 
Well, I don't know Noreen Hartz, but I wish her absolutely all the best. I was reading about her and she seems to be an extraordinary person. She got her degree at the age of 19. She's absolutely brilliant. She's been doing all sorts of really high-powered stuff. And, of course, it's the the male who comes out and says such things as a lefty academic with no experience of journalism. And they seem to think equally invalidating her is that she once clashed with Jeremy Clarkson over dinner. I mean, my goodness, the woman sounds great. I don't know, though. I mean, it's great to have a woman in that job, but surely there were other women who are qualified, who have TV experience and journalistic experience, able to do it. And that seems a little bit... Unfair to me. Well, I don't know. I think they, they, she'll be tested out and presumably they've done some kind of uh, screen test with her. I think to to have the, the, the brain and the analytical ability and all of, all of the rest of it says a lot for her. Um, I, I was looking up comments about it on The Guardian and, of course, it's all full of, oh, it's jobs for the girls, another girl gets a job, nepotism lefties. And my favourite comment was, well... You wouldn't see a circus giving a line tamer's job to a juggler. <laughs> oh, <God laughs> sake. But um, we do, we do a lot of research, and I meet a lot of readers, and uh, we just did some recently. And the women I was talking to was talking to, and these weren't millennial women; these were midlife women. All talked about getting all of their news from social media. They were not mm. relating to the TV news and current affairs offering at all. Afraid they weren't relating to newspapers either, Christina. Um, <laughs> it's all right. I know that. And so, I mean, I don't know. I don't know how Norina screen tested. I do know that she's an expert on social media and, in fact, has written a very influential book about it. And frankly, if I were running TV news and current affairs, the fact that a large part of my audience prefers to go to social media for their information would worry me tremendously. And I think that it's not true to say that newspapers, half of their audience women and and TV news and current affairs, half of their audience women. I don't think that these media uh, platforms have ever appealed to women. And I think it's only now that it's getting more difficult because it's it's more in the days when there were just four, five TV channels. I don't think they really cared whether or not women watched. And it's only now that they're competing 600 TV channels and social media that they actually think, oh, my God, we've got to get more of an audience from somewhere. Where can we go? Oh, women. Yeah. Those people with bumps on their chests. Let's go after them. It's like they've never heard of them before. Lindsay, do you think women come in for particularly vociferous, uh, hateful comments on social media? So, I mean, oh, for example, dreadful. when Nick Robinson was political editor of, of the BBC, I, used to, I mean, I obviously still follow him on Twitter now, but you'd get a lot of comments calling him a Tory or blah, blah, blah. But now Laura Koonsberg is doing it. If you look at her Twitter, the reactions are always about her looks, her appearance. They're incredibly uh, sexist and hateful based around the fact that she's a woman. It's absolutely unbelievable that this happens in this day and age. And... How tough do you have to be as well as being really good at your job and really well informed to take that? And I was absolutely horrified when I saw that a senior woman within the BBC said that women should just toughen up. No, they shouldn't. Employers have a duty of care to their employees. And I think it's completely inappropriate to expect anyone to have to tolerate that. And as for the people that do it, I mean, just beggars belief. Well, actually, I was speaking at the same conference where Fran Unsworth said that the other day. And it's very interesting because when you think back over the years, women have been put in there in a very sort of gendered way. We didn't see a single grey haired woman on the telly unless they were on a soap. 
And then we get Mary Beard, who is absolutely fantastic, dynamic and all the rest of it. And it wasn't just on social media. A.A. Gill, the TV critic in the Sunday Times, talked about her tombstone teeth, her undyed hair, her lack of makeup, and generally said that if she were to appear in a programme, it should be the undateable, so people like he did not want to look at unattractive women like her. And that's, that that's was disgraceful. in the Sunday Times, and it's there. Anyone can look it up on Google. And what we've been finding is that young women, old women, middle-aged women, do not want to appear on the screen because of what's happening and because of social media Now, we are going to be working with the BBC. Women in film are going to be working with the BBC later this year to do media training for women experts. Because women, you know, if if a producer phones up and says, right, we're looking for an expert to appear on such and such show, women tend not to want to because of the trawling and because of the general um, reactions that they get. And it is very interesting what Fran Unsworth says, because the BBC or anybody else can't actually stop this. And we had a very nice young woman on this panel. Her name is Dr. Emily Grossman, and she is a a science expert, and she does a lot of television. And she said the amount of trolling that she gets is disgusting. Now, with Mary Beard, also, it was very sexual stuff. You know, it wasn't about, I disagree with what you said about the Romans. No, it was about body parts and what she ought to do with them. It really is horrible. And I do think that women do need support. And what we are going to be setting up after the expert women media training is support groups. Because anybody as an individual, very often people get this and they think it's personal. It's not. It's nasty little teenage boys in their pants trolling people on the internet and nobody can stop them. Isn't the best answer the fact, you know, she's very successful and she's become a best-selling author and worldwide known and That's the way to deal with this, not to have a support group. No, that's how she deals with it publicly. But the young woman who was talking, the the young scientist, she was saying that there are several times she was about to give up because it's very, very difficult to get this sexual onslaught constantly. And she actually said that she was happy to come and help train up the new people who were coming in. It's not something that... Most of us could really shrug off. I don't know if you can, but I don't think I but would. Also, but I, think, I, I did a lot of work. I've done a lot of work with Malala. I co-wrote yeah. her book and she gets most tremendous abuse online from people in Pakistan who mm. denounce her as a CIA agent and a prostitute and all of mm. these things. And I say to her sometimes, isn't it? upsetting and she says look you know, I feel sorry for those people that they they have to descend to that level and it's because they've always been disappointed in their leaders and the people that they don't believe that people are really what they seem to be so yeah, Malala, I, think I that's agree Malala is wonderful but I think she's probably not a typical young woman she's an incredibly brave and strong young person Lindsay? Yeah, I know any not. And the thing is, once a woman, you know, has become successful, you know, against probably quite considerable odds, then she has a choice really as to whether she wants to put herself in this forum. I know any number of women who say they will do any questions on radio, they won't do question time on TV, because they don't need to. They're, they are as famous as they need to be, they earn as much money as they need to do. And why would they put themselves in the line of fire? And that means that, of course, we see fewer expert women because women who have choices rule themselves out. And why wouldn't they when you see what they have to put up with? I think it's heroic when women 
do push through and do put up with it. And Malala is an extraordinary young woman, but not everybody can be extraordinary. I think it's something to do with the numbers. If you're in the minority, like Mary Beard was the first woman who went on telly, hadn't dyed her hair, all the rest of it, and she got all of this abuse. Um, I think if there were more people, it's like the tipping point, really. I think if people were much more used to seeing people of all ages, it's very much like Hollywood. You know, whenever um, Hollywood always tend to have, you know, the, the classic thing is the older man, the young bride, then that whole thing comes into we have breakfast time television, we have the older man, the young woman. Traditionally, the man always used to, on breakfast shows, he would start good morning and welcome, and then she would come in. So that our culture has always had men leading and women being younger. Bruce Forsyth, for example, often worked with young women who could have been his granddaughters. And so we've set up this thing. You used to call them dollies, didn't you, on Play yes, Your Cards, right? You said, yeah. come on, dollies, do your dealing. I well, remember that's that. That's right. And you get a lot of teasing and all the rest of it, like a daughterly, you know, a father-daughter, but you didn't really get an equal situation. I didn't get a father-daughter vibe from that, if I'm honest. No, something more murky. murky vibe, yeah. We won't go there, Paul. <laughs> but don't you think if you were an alien from outer space trying to learn about Britain from television, you would conclude that the average lifespan of a woman was probably 45, because yes. you would very rarely see a woman over 45 on television. So you would, yes. as this alien, would just conclude, oh, well, you know, the men clearly, men clearly go on to be 90, um, and the women only live half as long. How extraordinary. You're you know. absolutely right. And quite frankly, you can be very lacking in the pulchritude department if you're a man on TV and nobody worries about you. But if you're a tiny bit overweight or if you've had a bad hair day or something and a woman, then you really get attacked. I mean, I could count on the fingers of all my hands, both of my hands, um, the number of men who are very good broadcasters, but they are they have bad hair days, they're bald, they're repulsive looking in many ways. I apologise, that, that, that could apply to me, of course. <laughs> Hence I'm doing radio. <laughs> no, Paul, stop it. But it's absolutely true that women are still judged on their looks and they're expected to look young. And men are judged on their authority. And it used to be that women were not allowed to read the news because they thought they lacked authority. Now, when you see foreign correspondents like Christina... The women are out there. They are doing so much work. Do you remember the fall of Tripoli? It was three women who covered that. Zena Kodra, uh, Alex Crawford and Lise Doucette were right there, right in the middle of it, when the men were back in the hotel. And yet we still have, you know, looking at cultural changes, that's changing there. Women can be at the front line, but women... Soldiers may not be in the front line of war because they have to be protected. I should just point out, I'm not anything against my female TV colleagues because I think they all do an amazing job, but they're not working on their own. They're in teams, usually with men. Actually, what people like me in print do, we're on our own. Well, there. sometimes they have women camera people. I think Lise Doucette and I think Zena Kodra had um, women there are some really good mm. women who are out there uh, with the war you correspondents. You see very few women cameramen, though. I know, it seems but they, to be an have... area where women are really not very. But Christina, present. isn't anyone on their own in these dangerous kind of foreign climbs? Aren't they equally as vulnerable? Well, I mean, it's become much more dangerous actually. When I started out doing this, if anything happened to you, it was usually 
a result of bad luck or you've done something stupid. Now we're targets in a way that we never were. And, you know, there's we've all seen the videos of our colleagues having their heads chopped off and uh, we've all lost friends. And so I think it's a lot harder probably for young women starting out today to go into that kind of field because, you know, nobody wants that to happen to them. And presumably that's because the regimes that would seek to execute journalists on the battlefield, whereas before they would, you know, spare them, are obviously homophobic, misogynist, and and clearly you're going to be first in the firing line. Yes, absolutely. But I don't think, I mean, maybe we also used to feel as a woman that you were slightly more protected because there was a sort of honour towards women that doesn't exist now. And there's also... You know, lots of sexual abuse and people used to keep quiet about that because you didn't, you felt people would belittle you if you mentioned anything. And now people are starting to speak out a bit more about it. But it is still difficult because if you do, you feel that then you're really being portrayed as a sort of sex object and people won't take seriously what you uh, report. It seems that the newspaper industry isn't moving as fast as perhaps television. But do you think it is It is moving slowly in the right direction? As I said before, I think it's gone backwards a bit. I, don't, I feel like I look around the newsroom at the Sunday Times, there seems to be fewer women doing more serious jobs than there were a few years ago. And I think that's very sad. Um, I don't think that we cover women's issues when we cover conflicts for example if you take I looked at the war in Iraq when I was covering the first stage of that we didn't have a single quote from a woman it was all we'd done was interview men it was as if Iraq was just a country of men and actually in a war situation the people that are actually really having to hold things together and educate their children and protect them and feed them are the women so Yes, the men might be doing sort of bang-bang on the front line, but that's only a fraction of the story. And that tends to be what mostly gets reported because it's mostly men that are covering it and that's what they're interested in or men that are choosing what goes into the paper or on the news bulletin and they think that's more sexy and glamorous. What's your view on the New Day? Because the executives at Trinity Mirror have been completely savaged for it closing down after two months. But in a sense, you know, they were trying to have a a gender-inclusive paper, had a female editor, it was trying to be female and male-friendly stories, and yet commercially it was a disaster. I don't think two months is enough time, to be honest, to really know whether something's going to work or not. So, so it's like they try to brave thing to for judge. the right reasons and then just pull the plug. Again, yeah. again, from our research, everything that New Day tried to do is, is what I've heard women asking for. I think it was just too little too late. I, I don't think women are very engaged with newspapers. Um, I think newspapers have let them down consistently for decades. And I think one newspaper that tries to break that mould and is given two months to do it in and very small budgets and not that much promotion when you think of what they were trying to do, wasn't going to reverse decades of women thinking that newspapers weren't talking to them. It's a real shame. I I thought that that it was interesting what they tried to do and, and I believe that those people that did see it did like it. It was just too little too late. Do you think, Lindsay, that gendered magazines are on the way out in the long term? I know that there's been the death of the recent kind of lads mags like FHM and Zoo and so on, but, you know, my wife still reads six or seven what I would call women's magazines, even though I read them and enjoy them. I I think you'd find that women's magazines are 
actually totally bucking the trend. Um, newspapers are very challenged, obviously. TV uh, is very fragmented now. There, everyone's very affected by social media. And women's magazines, particularly for women aged 25 and over, um, are as healthy as they've ever been and as strong as they've ever been. And I think that's because they reliably talk to women about what women want to hear and in language that women choose, which is why, to go back to New Dare, I can completely understand that Trinity Mirror um, and the executives there had come from a magazine background, would say, OK, we know how to talk to women. And if you talk to women... Um, in a way that that they respond to, then then you can sell a lot of copies. So in actual fact, women's magazines are doing as well as they've ever done um, and some are increasing. I think if you look at the big magazines, Good Housekeeping is one, Vogue is another, they're actually selling more than they were selling 10, 15 years ago. It's, it's extraordinary and that's because I think it, it makes perfect sense that if you talk to your audience with knowledge and respect, then they will respond to that. But don't you think it's also, I mean, current affairs magazines are doing well and actually weekly papers, Sunday Times, we still sell a lot of copies. And I think it's partly because people feel bombarded by information on social media and they still, you know, they want something that's actually going to sort that yeah. out and analyse it and actually give them a, a proper sense of what's going on. Yeah, I, yeah, I think if you're good at communicating, you're good at communicating. And I think it's social media is bombarding. Also, it reinforces prejudices. I mean, we know about the, the algorithms that ensure that you only see the things that are similar to things you've already seen, which is why it's very important, I think, particularly that broadcast news media does reach out to their whole audience. Um, it's very important for democracy that people don't only get their news from uh, sources that are algorithmically fixed to make sure it reinforces what they already think. So, Lindsay, do you think, though, there is a, something to be said for magazines that are aimed overtly at both genders? I'm thinking of, like, Vanity Fair, Empire Magazine does quite well. It has a really strong female and male readership. Even Kerrang! Magazine, you know, my wife and I both like rock music and it seems to feature as many female artists as it does male. I think the secret of, of those magazines and really of any successful magazine is that they're about a community of people with shared interests. And of course, there are interests that are shared across the genders, Empire being a good example of one, Kerrang! being another one. So yeah, yeah, it can work. But it's, it's, about, it's about good communication and good communication, understanding your audience and reaching out to them. And to, and to go back to the initial point, you're never going to understand your audience if the people producing that form of media are not at least trying to be representative of it. If they, if you draw all of your executives and editors from one pool and then try to reach out to another pool of people, that's probably doomed to failure. Yes, I think it's absolutely the biggest problem. It's all sort of 50-something white men, mostly Oxbridge. Also, you know, very few minorities on any newspapers. And if I look back at, you know, we have an editor, our magazine editor, Eleanor Mills, woman. She has, you know, really lobbied at times on the paper to cover certain things. So, for example, female genital mutilation, which I cannot see any male editor there would have got behind. And recently I went to Nigeria to do something about what happened to the Chibok girls. Again, that was very much her pushing that. And these are things that I think people really want to read about, but um, would not have come about if it hadn't been for a woman really, really pushing and, you know, having to persuade 
male colleagues, and that's why it's important to have women at the top as well. Kate, do you think that this so-called kind of women's content is looked down upon by male editorial managers as in a bit as kind of fluffy? Well, it's interesting, the whole notion of what is women's content. You know, what Christina was talking about is every human being's content, you know, what is happening there. And when just now, whenever um, we were talking about Good Housekeeping magazine, the thing about Good Housekeeping magazine is it's intelligent discussion and coverage of something which a man or woman could read. I am a closet reader. I just have to <laughs> yes. that early well, I'm out of the closet <laughs> yeah. completely. I've been reading it for it's many years. It's a fantastic years. magazine. Because it's not, yes, you get your cookery and your recipes and your gardening, but it's a lot more than that. It's looking at issues that face people, that face women or children or people in general, relationships. It's about the work-life balance, which affects everybody. It's about career change. I love these stories of mid-career women changing their lives. I just can't get enough of them. And of course, it's got Sandy Toxvig, <laughs> who everybody loves. And in a way, um, good housekeeping is not dissimilar to, for example, uh, Women's Hour, which attracts probably about as many men as women, because whether it's called good housekeeping or Women's Hour, people know that they can get something intelligent out of it. And it's not you know, banging a drum for any particular thing. It leads to discussion. And I think it's very difficult to gender things. Yes, I like reading about what the latest type of trousers is or how I can look thinner in 10 minutes or decluttering my house or something. But it's about a lot more than that too. But Kate, I mean, this this is not a fault on, on Lindsay at all, but this is more of a, a generic criticism of, of female magazines per se. But there's the whole almost cliche criticism now where you make a joke of how the average women's magazine will say on page 10, how to get your man to love you for who you are. And on page 22, how to lose £10. So so there's a kind of duality there and a potential contradiction. And, and what about the, the whole perpetual of overtly skinny female body types as well. Do you think that the the so-called female magazine industry has a case to answer? Well, I don't really think you can class them all the same. I think hello is a completely different sort of thing from good housekeeping in stylist. I I just feel a failure when I read hello. I see all these people having the most amazing time in mansions and I think, why aren't I living that amazing life? I know, but that's the same kind of people who are watching Hollywood Wives or something like that. Oh no, I I draw the line there. No, I don't want you to confess on here. It would be too embarrassing. But the thing is, there's got to be something for all sorts of different markets. So I don't really see how you can talk about gendered content you know I would not read Hello magazine and I'm sure the rest of us around the table wouldn't read it but there's an audience for it I don't really care about the inside of some girl who's won a talent contest I don't care what her house looks like I'd rather be reading some intelligent content but can I just jump in there and I do take issue with the idea that some subjects are fluffy and some aren't some are serious because I think it's important for for any form of media to to mix the light with the shade and and to create advanced content because no one's going to read something that just looks like your homework being handed out mm. to you and they're certainly not going to pay for that. So providing a compelling mix that's right for your audience is the job of the editor. And women's magazines taken as a whole collectively have done some extraordinary things over the years, we've seen the most extraordinary breakthroughs in breast cancer, which has gone from a sort of killing 50% of people who were diag- of women who were diagnosed in the 70s and 80s 
to um, a survival rate now of over 90%. A lot of that has been due to consciousness raising, awareness raising and fundraising on by magazines, all of whom take part in um, October's Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Uh, skin cancer. Skin cancer. I remember writing about skin cancer years ago, largely ignored by newspapers. The connection with uh, suntanning, largely ignored. In fact, lots of health stories really get their lead in magazines and women very often being gatekeepers for the health of the whole family. So overwhelmingly, I would say, magazines have been a force for good. Even that we're having this conversation, it's, women, it's women's magazines that have been um, championing the women who have broken through these glass ceilings. Okay, so there's a bit about lipstick as well. Well, why not? As I say, it's not homework. You're supposed to read it for fun and, you know, a little bit of light and a little bit of shade. I agree yeah. with that, but I my argument was that women shouldn't just be writing about the the lipstick and the more fluffy things i want to read all those things but i want i think women have serious things to say about other issues too and i really believe that women cover things in a different way to men and that we should be seeing both viewpoints and we're not in many things even you know the brexit debate at the moment how many women are we really hearing from on that it's very much a sort of male driven um, auditonians on either side. Yeah, although there are a number of very high-profile women on both sides who are very interesting on the reasons why they're on both sides, and they are being covered in magazines, but not in, uh, not in newspapers. Mm. Christina, what would you say to a kind of young female graduate who's inspired by your career and s- setting out to en- you know, emulate your success? What kind of advice would you give to that person? Well, I do it. I mean, I, I've had, I'm complaining about things here, but I've had a lot of fun, otherwise I wouldn't still be doing it, and it's been... It's an amazing privilege to go and cover all these things. And I don't feel I've ever been held back because I'm a woman. I'm just saying that I find it astonishing that I've never answered to a woman. And I I would like to because I think a woman editing me would have different views about what kind of stories I should be covering and how. And I'd like to have that discussion. And I don't want to end my career never having had that discussion. So I really encourage young women to go and do the same. And I think it it's good to mentor lots of young women going out to different places. And and it's very rewarding when you see them go and, and start to flourish themselves. So. Are enough women entering the, the you know the profession of journalism? I think there. I do sense that there are a lot of young women at the beginning. Um, it's sort of what happens around the thirty-something stage. I probably around the time people are having children. So, Kate, twenty-five years ago, you joined Women in Film and Television. What was your motivation then, and what is it now? I used to work at the BBC from the early eighties. I was a producer and director there, and. I was trained by the BBC. The hardest thing then was to get in. But once you were in, I did multi-camera directing. I did women in management, all of that. And I had a great network. If I wanted to move to another department, I could get an attachment to try that. It was perfect. Then um, my husband wanted to move to London to start an independent company. And I moved and became a freelance, working for all sorts of companies, uh, but still mainly making programmes for Channel 4 and BBC. But because jobs were never advertised, it was very difficult to find out what was going on. So I went along to a woman in film meeting and it so happened they had a commissioner speaking about what she was looking for. 
And I suddenly realised that where as an individual, it was very difficult to find out what was going on to uh, get into the commissioner's office and so forth. As part of a group, it was much easier. So um, I helped as a volunteer at Women in Film and I uh, was on, I chaired the board for a couple of years. And then as, as I was approaching 60 and not getting so much directing work, they were looking for a chief executive. And I thought, well, I've had a wonderful time making TV programmes. I've been all around the world. I've met amazing people. I didn't ever think I would like a desk job. But hey, I absolutely love it. And right now, what we are trying to do is grow the next generation of senior women. There are lots and lots of women coming in. So we're setting up mentoring schemes. We do all sorts of information. One of our women who was on the mid-career mentoring scheme has just set up a film funding initiative aimed at women filmmakers, which is fantastic. Mm. You know, just to see that coming round, she was on the mentoring scheme five years ago. And then we launched this new initiative called Boudicca at Cannes. And it's all over the LA Times and Screen International that she's coming through and she's helping other women. And I think this is the thing. I think it's something that women are very good at. Christina mentioned mentoring. I think that's absolutely crucial. You know, any young woman who wants to go into any media organisation, find a mentor for yourself, even if there isn't a mentoring scheme. I think people who are more experienced will react very well if you were to say, please, could I buy you a cup of coffee and talk to you about something and just ask people for advice. I think women are very, very good at helping others. And I have to say, it's not only women. On our mentoring scheme, some of our best mentors have been men. And when I started this scheme just a few years ago, I remember Lorraine Hegacy, who was the first ever woman controller at the BBC, said, don't just have women mentoring women. She said, the people who helped me in my career were mainly men. That was because they were the only ones who were in senior positions. But, you know, ask for help. What's about this whole thing, though, that sometimes women hold back other women? There is definitely an aspect of that. You know, it's like the Margaret Thatcher syndrome. But I do think it's the minority. I think there are women who really struggled at the beginning and they gave up any thoughts of relationships or family and all of that because they had to be more macho than the men. And sometimes, you know, then it's like Margaret Thatcher, they think, well, I did it. You know, it's like um, consultant doctors who felt that all young doctors should have to do 70-hour shifts because they did it. Mm. And it didn't do me any harm, they always say in a very bitter way. Lindsay, do you think that the media industry should consider quotas? Yeah, are there, if not going that far, you know, is there anything that we can do to change the recruitment practices to, to bring a gender balance to newsrooms? I think... I think quotas are very difficult. I think they present problems and I think any form of positive discrimination, actually one of the reasons I'm not in favour of it is that it's very, it can be very unfair on the person who gets put in a job that they're perhaps not ready for. And so I think it's very difficult. On the other hand, it has been 40 years since the Equal Opportunities Act and I think women are getting a bit fed up with the very, very slow rate of change. I suppose, thought that I would see massive change in my career. I'm not even sure now I'm going to see massive change in my daughter's career. I think we have to step back. I would hope step away from quotas unless, and I would hope that media organisations would put their house in order and start recruiting intelligently 
I mean, there's this there's this thing that that um, people say about recruitment that a man will apply for a job if he thinks he's got fifty percent of the skills required. A woman will only apply if she's got ninety nine percent of the skills required. So I think that it's about recruitment. If you only ever recruit from the traditional career career path, you will only ever get the traditional person. So. Let's hope people see sense and start looking at non-traditional career paths, not people who are no good or who don't know or who are just being given a chance, but people who've acquired their skills in different ways, women who've acquired their skills in different ways, who perhaps with a little bit of training in some simple technical things could quite quickly be at the position of someone who's worked their entire lifetime in a business. I think that's the only way we will get it. And I think I think quotas are hard. I would hate it if we had to go there. I mean, Christina, you said that you thought things were getting worse, actually, in newsrooms. Are there any kind of concrete changes to recruitment practices that you would advocate to, to, to no, rectify it? Well, like Lindsay, I'm uneasy with the idea of quotas because you would feel that you've just been given the job because you're a woman, not because you're actually good at what you do. But, you know, something has to happen to shake it up. Maybe women also need to be a bit more persistent. I don't know. I talked to one woman editor recently who said it was very interesting that when she gets submissions from freelance women reporters, if she turns them down, she never hears from them again. If she gets a mail and she turns them down, he will just keep sending endless for years ideas until eventually she will take and so you know maybe there's something in that that women take a bit personally if they're not given an assignment and don't and then don't put themselves forward again and men treat things a bit differently but I do think one of the biggest problems is this sort of culture and this you know the men going to the pub together and then talking about oh there's this job going and you know women are not part of that and so I, you know, I think newspapers. If you go into a newspaper, they're very unrepresentative, sadly, of the population. But it isn't just a problem of women. It's there's too many people from London, the South. There's no, no minorities. So how can you really produce a product which is appealing to a country as multicultural and as the UK today when you haven't got people from those communities working for you? We're running out of metaphorical tips. So, Kate, I'll give the final word to your good self. Right. Well, like um, Lindsay, I always felt I wouldn't want to be part of a quota, you know, because I would want to get the job because I was the best person for the job. But it's very interesting what's happened in the last couple of years. When Tony Hall got his job, he looked around and saw the huge lack of women on breakfast radio shows around the country. And I had a meeting with him at a very early stage and he said, I have told them that they've got to have 50% of breakfast presenters in all the local radio stations around the country have got to be women. He said, I know what they're all saying behind my back. They're all saying, oh, where are we going to find them? But they will. And you know what? They did. Because women are often invisible. Um, The chap who was running the Today programme just a few years ago was talking about how difficult it was to find women for the Today programme because they had to have authority and it was such an aggressive programme. All that time, Michelle Hussain sitting in the newsroom, suddenly they discover her. And frankly, she's the best of all of them. She's a fantastic presenter. She's absolutely terrific. And yet she was there under their nose. Now, in the film world, a really interesting thing has happened. In Sweden... They had only 26% of the filmmakers were women. And a woman took over called Anna Serner and she said, looking at this 
fund of money. She said, that's all taxpayers' money. We've got more women taxpayers than men in the country. We're going to divide it up. 50% to women, 50% to men. And there was an outcry. People were saying, oh my God, you're going to make a laughingstock of us. You know, it should be about meritocracy. It should just be the best scripts. I mean, my God, women, you're mad. And she said, just do it. I'm not making it a quota. It's an expectation. And every month she checked. Within two years, they had 50% women and men filmmakers. Last year, at the Swedish Film Awards, 69% of the awards were won by women. Now, I was on a panel with her and I said, but surely you don't think that women are necessarily better than men as filmmakers. You know, I'm one of these naive people who just thinks that there's gender equality. And she said, no, of course not. She said, but what happened was all the best women got their funding, the best men got their funding. And she said, it's the middle level where the men were much more inclined to put themselves forward than the women were. And when that was divided equally, all these fresh voices came through, the new characters came through, different stories came through, and that's what attracted the juries, and they really loved this. She said, I think it will settle, and it will become 51-49, 52-48. It will become normal. And since then, Australia are going to do it, Canada are going to do it, Ireland are going to do it, at the Cannes Film Festival, the BFI said they're going to do it 50-50 by 2020. And let's wait and see if it works. Like you, I've been waiting since 1970 for equality to happen. <laughs> it's got to happen by 2020. Ladies, we're out of metaphorical tape now, so that all we need to do now is just uh, inform our listeners how people can follow you on social media and engage with your work. Uh, Lindsay, should we start with your good self? Are you on Twitter? Yes, I am on Twitter. Yes, it's at Lindsnick, L-I-N... D-S-N-I-C-H. Kate? At Women in Film Kate. And our website is www.wftv.org.uk or just look up Women in Film. Christina? Um, I'm on Twitter. Uh, it's at Christina Lamb. And you can read what I write in the Sunday Times. And how can people buy your latest book, Farewell Kabul? <laughs> they can buy it from Amazon or all good bookshops. Such a great question, that isn't it, that you want to be asked. Thank you ever so much for your time. For those that want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Paul W.R. Blanchard. You can also go to the website, mediafocus.org.uk, and leave your email address in the box at the top of the website and receive a shiny email once a week letting you know when the new podcast is out. But that's it. Thanks ever so much for listening. The associate producer was Jordan Greenway. I'm Paul Blanchard. Catch you next time. A Big Things Media Production. Big Things!